<clears throat> Boy, and I can't tell you how much also as I get here on Sunday mornings and am able to fellowship here with our church body and worship together and how excited I get to get up into the pulpit and to not just bring the message that God has laid on my heart over the week, but also it's, he gives me new ideas. Sometimes that can be dangerous. <laughs> but he gives me just a new inspiration, if you will, uh, to preach. And I, I really believe that that is just continued confirmation that the Lord has brought us together and that this is a partnership of, of working together to see God unfold his plan for harvest in Montgomery County. Uh, I'm very excited about that. Um, in, the, in the immediate, I'm excited about the small groups that we should be kind of getting started up in early February. And just to let you know, we're going to be kind of solidifying our small group leaders over uh, this week. And we'll be meeting with them a couple times. And then we'll be presenting for you guys. It'll probably be like a clipboard type situation or something like that. Of These are the small groups. They're meeting at these times, at these homes. If you have an interest in maybe hosting a small group in your house, if you have any other questions about the small groups, please come and see me uh, today or give me a call sometime this week. My number is on the front of the bulletin with the rest of the elders. Um, I'd like to answer any questions that you have about that or clarify anything. We'll be talking more about the purpose of those and, and how those are going to be functioning. Um, uh, over the next couple weeks as well. <clears throat> Something a little bit further down the road as far as housekeeping before getting to the sermon is I'd just like to share with you some, some observations I'm making and kind of my, one of my goals in 2012 as your pastor here. You know, I so appreciate how I get to hear from you your love for hearing God's word preached. And I appreciate hearing from you your, your um, desire that we're really hearing from God's word. Not JD's ideas, but, but that God's word is being proclaimed. And I appreciate hearing that from you because that's a love that I have. That's something that I really appreciate myself and it's another one of those confirming things of the Lord uh, but you could describe that as being kind of something that we both value something that's very important to us something that it, we share in common that and that you share in common uh, between each other um, there, there's other things that I have have just started to kind of notice not just started but I've noticed right from the start that is unique to harvest. 
that is something that is central to what harvest is and central to its core. For instance, um, harvest sees the ministry of the church as being a responsibility of the people of harvest. That the people of harvest are to be doing the ministry. Now that's not, um, it's not that it's uncommon, but that's not necessarily true of all churches. A lot of churches see it's the staff. You know, well, we pay you to do the ministry, you know, something like that. Uh, But Harvest sees church as a pitch-in, not a buffet. (laughs) You know, that, that people aren't showing up and like, oh, what do I want from here? Okay, grab it and jump in the car and get home, you know. But instead, it's we bring what we have and we share it with each other. And that that is the ministry of harvest. And that's how the ministry is accomplished at harvest. Something else that I have observed already is that their desire to keep flexible in how we worship God. To keep flexible in, in um, maybe specifically Sunday morning worship and things like that. To not get into the rut of ritualism. And that is something very special to harvest. Another thing that I observe is that if there's a consistent word that I hear talked about at harvest, it's the word family. And not just that families, the nuclear family is important, but that harvest is a family. And and that's important. I, I value that so much too. Harvest is an extended family. You know, you have grandparents and you have grandkids and I would hope that the, the young people at Harvest, are, you almost consider them almost like a, a spiritual niece or nephew. And, you know, you've got your crazy uncle and you've got the aunt that wants to come up and pinch your cheeks and, you know, give you nicknames and stuff like that. that but that Harvest sees itself as a family. And that's something that just I, and I'm just sharing these with you, not in any sort of official sense, but just tell you, these are some of the things that I observe already. And these are things that Harvest values and that are important to Harvest. And what I hope to do over the next six to nine months is um, together with the elders and just in conversations with you and in observation is to draw out about five biblical values that kind of establish this is how Harvest does things. That, that when we have small groups or when we get together um, to worship, that, that this is how we go about it. And that's an important step in better understanding um, how we minister to our children, how we minister to each other. What is the heart that God has given us? We're not called to be everything. We're not called to do everything. We're not called to do everything in every way. You know, but we are wanting to attach ourselves to what God wants to do in the way that he's wired us as harvest to do it. And so I, that, that's kind of how I'm wired, is to kind of draw those things out and appreciate and establish, you know, this is who harvest is in a lot of ways. Um, and getting an idea of these biblical values are a part of the process of looking into what does God want to see us accomplish together. You know, I think of when we sang, did you feel the mountains tremble as it parts it? Um, did you feel the darkness tremble 
as all the saints sing one song. And you know, that's definitely true on the level of all saints all over the world should be singing the song of the gospel. But God has also, I believe, given individual churches jobs to do. And a part of developing an idea of what does God want us to accomplish over the next two or three years is a part of that all of the saints at harvest singing one song. Uh, Keeping in mind that harvest has a value of the saints investing themselves personally in ministries. So it's not like, oh no, you have to be a part of this. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that's not what we're talking about. So that my hope is that when we see what God wants to accomplish through us, we can set our eyes on 2013, 2014, 2015. What do we, what do we get excited about seeing happen? Um, you know, knowing this would affect the program's that Harvest would choose to adopt in, in the plan that these would be steps to what God wants to accomplish among us and through us. And so, you know, we've maybe seen it happen that churches will kind of be like, oh yeah, that, that, that's a good thing to do. Yeah, we'll do that. Oh, the church down the street is doing this. And if we don't do that, we might lose people or something like that. Yeah, we better do that too. And, and all of a sudden people are like feeding this machine of programs and nobody knows why well this must just be what church does we burn each other out you know trying to keep all the plates spinning and and i'm really big on just focusing on what what is god called us to do and what does he put on our hearts and, and empowering people to also be doing personal ministry um, and we'll get into that a little bit i i see that in the passage that that we're looking at together this morning. But just wanted to share with you a little bit of an update um, of what I and the leadership are, are going to be looking into over the next six to nine months of what is important to Harvest, what makes Harvest who it is. Um, and, you know, one thing that I can already see we have in common, as I mentioned, it's a love for hearing from God's word, a love for seeing God's word proclaimed and making much of him. And I appreciate that in the worship this morning, um, a big part of that. Uh, so let's bow our heads as we get to Colossians 1, 24. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you so much that you are everlasting, that you have a big plan, and that is just so understated how big your plan is. We can't imagine eternity. But you have an eternal plan that involves us. How, what an honor that is, how amazing that is. Um, Lord, we thank you for including us in your big plan for this universe and for outside of this universe. Um, Lord, we just pray that you'd help us to wrap our minds around that a little bit more this morning and to be able to bring glory to you as you uh, ping that around in our head and and in our hearts and and develop us a little bit better into the image of Christ uh, through your truth. We thank you for this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You know, we have been looking at this idea in Colossians of Christ being supreme, that Christ is preeminent, that in him all of the fullness of God dwells, and as Paul will say in chapter 2, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form in Christ. And last week we looked at this idea that that. God chose to sacrifice himself, that Jesus Christ, God the Son, became the God-man and sacrificed himself in order that we might be reconciled to God, in order that we might be able to be friends with God again in in the form, in the shape of that original relationship that we first had with him when he created us. And we're looking today in kind of a, at Paul starts to unwrap autobiographically a little bit about himself and his calling. And I, I really appreciate this passage of scripture because it, we can kind of see intermingling this idea of, so what now? So what about me today with my kids? What about um, me in the ministry that God has dropped in my lap or laid on my heart? Uh, What about me in my family, in my neighborhood, at my workplace? You know, um, I, I can tend to get really lost in little jobs. Um, at home this this week it was painting a bedroom you know Kelly and I are so excited to hopefully get actually into our master bedroom you know at our house it's Hannah's been reminding me you know she says yeah you said Micaiah would be sharing my room with me for like two weeks and I think I said six weeks and I think today marks six weeks you know so she's kind of reminding me of the fact that yeah I told you so that sort of thing and um, you know and I've been uh really um, inspiring myself with some deep uh, listening as I've been painting. So Adventures in Odyssey was uh, teaching me a thing or two (laughs) this past week. And uh, I actually was really uh, kind of struck to my heart in one of the wrap-ups when um, the verse was shared as I was listening to it of, of let us all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And I just thought, wow, Lord, that's for me. I mean, that's for me with my kids these last couple of weeks. You know, just feel like, okay, I only have a little bit of time here. You, 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 you know, just kind of like. And, and so Adventures in Odyssey just struck me to my core this past week. But, but I find wrapped up in this whole idea of God what do you have me to do here in these circumstances that you have me in, in this job that you've given me as a father, as a pastor, as, as, in our workplace, in our neighborhood? How does all of this big plan of yours relate to where I'm at? And I find so much in this word that Paul uses called stewardship. This stewardship given to me, he calls it. I mean, what an amazing idea that we've been given a stewardship during our time here on this earth. And um, 
And I, I find that that's kind of the intersection of where these things lie. So with, all, with that said, let's look at the passage um, <clears throat> together here. We're, over the next two weeks, we're looking at chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5. So don't panic. We're not looking at all these verses today. But he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have had for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The first big idea here that we're looking at from this passage is the fact that our, uh, of Paul, our messenger of mysterious grace, our messenger of mysterious grace. Now he opens up here right off the bat. Remember, He's going from in verses 20 through 23 where he talks about we are now reconciled to God. Those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior and the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, we now are able to have a relationship of being reconciled. But, but even in developing that relationship, God sees us as holy. God sees us as beyond accusation. He sees us as without blemish. So we have this, this unhindered relationship with God in his grace, but yet at the same time we experience this hindrance of our flesh and of this world. And we look forward to that day that we're just standing before him and, and no longer in this cursed flesh, no longer hindered by sin, but, but yet he sees us as being holy now. And so he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Paul both, there's a double verb here, he both rejoiced and suffered for their sake. I don't, um, we don't usually think of these things as being hand in hand, rejoicing in our sufferings. Um, but in verse 2, 5, at the end of this section of 
scripture, we read about why it is that Paul is rejoicing for the Colossians, yet in his imprisonment, at the very end he says, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. You might remember he never, at this point, had visited Colossae. To our knowledge, he never visited this church there. But yet he's rejoicing for them. He's rejoicing over them. And what he's rejoicing in is to see their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. If you recall, their pastor, Epaphras, had come and visited Paul while he was in Rome, while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And Epaphras was giving Paul a report of what's going on in Colossae as as far as these false teachers that had brought Um, that had kind of moved their way into the church and a number of the people in the church were following this doctrine that was was very much opposed to the idea of Christ is our once for all savior. And yet Paul is rejoicing in the fact that so many in the Colossian church were standing strong, as he puts it, in the firmness of their faith in Christ. He rejoiced to see that they were standing firm amidst what they were being confronted with as far as false teaching. He says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Paul describes that his sufferings in some way are filling up what is, and he uses the term, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, he's not saying at all here that Christ's work on the cross was somehow deficient in order to be able to save. We see in, throughout the scriptures that Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that we might be saved. But this idea here, I think, is better understood under the context of what Paul had been talking about. If you recall, Paul had been discussing and pointing out the fact that Christ suffered in his literal body. You might recall from verse 22, it says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Notice that he was talking about Christ's reconciling work was done in his flesh in order to present us to God. And the the Gnostics, recall, would, well, it's not something you would recall, but in many places in these epistles that Paul writes from prison in Rome, he's also dealing with the issue of people in those churches that he's writing to is trying to use his imprisonment to discredit him and to discredit his ministry. He even says at another point that, that if, if his imprisonment leads to other people preaching the gospel all the more, trying to kind of somewhat usurp him as an apostle, he says at least the gospel is being preached. You know, so there, there, unfortunately, there was always kind of people trying to, to fill the void that they, that they thought might have been there from Paul being imprisoned. And so in many ways, him saying, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he's kind of pointing to the fact that, you know, I, I'm okay with my imprisonment. It's, it's a connection of me to Christ. Look, I, Christ suffered in his flesh 
prior to his execution. Here I am, Paul, in my flesh. This is a connection for me with who Christ is. And Paul, you know, was in danger of facing execution here in Rome. I don't believe it was in this imprisonment that Paul was finally executed, but it was a later imprisonment in Rome that Paul finally was executed. But in some ways, Paul is pointing to that this is a connection between him and Christ. Christ suffered in his flesh. Paul in his flesh is, is connecting, is filling up what is lacking. There, there was actually um, some, some understanding in the early church that like a woman going through labor prior to to delivering of a child that the church in a sense was going through the labor pains of that would lead up to the return of Christ also so there's an element of that too here that Paul is is referring to in a sense of going through the labor pains prior to Christ's coming again and so just pointing to this idea that He's not saying there's something lacking in what Christ did for us, but he's connecting himself and in some ways validating his ministry all the more that I'm just taking part in the sufferings of Christ. He refers in Ephesians to the prayer that he might know Christ and in the fellowship of his sufferings even. Um, And so that's what's being pointed to here. So our messenger of mysterious grace our, of, of this mysterious grace he goes into of which meaning the church he became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given me for you to make the word of God fully known <clears throat> he refers to his ministry as being a stewardship now Paul was called as an apostle specifically to take the gospel to the Gentile people. Here's a, God was speaking to Ananias, um, the man that came and ministered to Paul um, soon after Paul was confronted by the risen Christ when he was a persecutor of the church and he was confronted by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And this is an important part of his being an apostle because one condition of being an apostle would be that you physically had met the risen Christ. And so this is part of what Paul's enabled Paul to be an apostle, um, this significance. But as Paul was waiting to understand what does this all mean, and Christ came to a man named Ananias and was describing for Ananias what part Paul would play in the spreading of the gospel. And in this statement, To Ananias, Christ says, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Speaking of Paul. Later, Paul says of himself in Ephesians, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Um, this ministry of, 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 of Christ to the Gentiles was given specifically to Paul as an apostle. Doesn't mean he's the only one sharing Christ with the Gentiles, but as an apostle, he was the one 
who was called to take this message to the Gentiles. Um, this doesn't really seem that important to us. But, but let's keep in mind, we're those people. We are the Gentiles who this message was to be brought to. But l- l- I want you to kind of understand today just how radical that was in a lot of ways. Paul describes his, his stewardship as having the job of making God's word more fully known, of, of expanding that out, of teasing out this, this plan of taking this message to the Gentiles, but also unpacking this mystery a little bit. Um, but, but back to this idea of being a steward that Paul saw this as, the way that he describes his ministry as being a stewardship. Um, when I was in seminary, I worked as a waiter. And there's some funny stories that came out of this experience as being a very bad waiter. And you'll probably hear more of those over the years. But there were two men that, that were in charge of this restaurant. It was El Chico, a um, Mexican restaurant in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, and one of them <clears throat> would kind of come in uh, maybe once a day. He'd kind of see how things were going, talk to the chefs a little bit, and um, talk to the waiters a little bit. And he had an office. And, and um, you know, he was, he was kind of, he was a honcho, you could tell. There was another man that would, that would scurry around any time that, that that place was open. He was there. And um, he was there as we would get done with our, with our shifts. He was counting out, you know, the money f- for us. And, and um, you know, and we'd take our tip money with us. And you'd see him over in the area and he was doing inventory of things. He was uh, the one that was coming back. And if there was a problem in the kitchen, he was there. And he was kind of taking care of it. And the difference between these two men <clears throat> is that the first one that I described, he was the owner. So he, he owned the kitchen. He owned the equipment. He owned the food. He owned all these things. The second man that I described, he was the manager. And he didn't own any of it. But yet it was his job to take care of that there wasn't things missing. It was his job that if there was something going wrong in the kitchen, to deal with it. To make sure that everything was working well. To make sure that the, the wait staff was, was working well. And, and that's the difference between being the owner and being the manager. You could call this manager a steward of what was there. It wasn't his, but he had the job of being a steward of everything that was there at that restaurant. And I think it's interesting that Paul calls his ministry a ministry of being a steward of the gospel to the Gentiles. It wasn't his gospel. Although some, of, some people tried to pin this as, oh, this is Paul's message. This is Paul's gospel. He says, no, I'm a steward. This is a stewardship that I have. None of this belongs to me. I just have the job of managing what belongs to God. This great message this great plan that God has and you know <clears throat> this principle of being a steward or managing what God has is something that applies to us for sure you and I haven't had Jesus Christ appear to us and say I'm sending you to your family or I'm sending you 
to Montgomery County or to Crawfordville or to your neighborhood. But yet this principle of being a steward, this stewardship, is an imp- it, this, there's an implication here that this is how we are to relate to God's plan. And that as God attaches us to his plan, and that's what it means, part of what it means to be reconciled to God, is that just as Adam and Eve, specifically Adam was given a job to do, that as we return back to that relationship with God of being reconciled to him, we're returning back to this idea of, God, this is about you, and I am your gardener here. I am your steward here. I am bringing myself not only under the covering of Christ and his salvation, I am bringing myself back under your lordship and back under the fact that you created this place to be gardened for you and to be managed for you. I'm bringing myself back under as your steward of what belongs to you. Whether you're a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or a son or a daughter, an employee or an employer, our temptation is to think, oh, in this area, Christ doesn't reign supreme. I'm the boss. You know, in this area, I've got a job to do and it's to make myself look like a success. Or, or my kids have a job to do and that's to appreciate what it is that I have done for them. You know, in all of these areas of our lives, in all of these realms, all these roles that we play, if we're, if we're growing in Christ as our Savior, we're growing in what it means to allow Him to reign supreme and for us to have a stewardship of these areas. And it, it's really key. And, you know, in your bulletin there, that's why it says there, my stewardship from God. And maybe just something, you don't have to write something in there, but I want to challenge you with that, to think about what is a role in your life that as you run into problems there, as you run into roadblocks, it's like, oh, why can't I get my ideas through here? Why can't I get, you know, why, why is it that I'm running into troubles here? Um, a lot of times we, see, we run into that. We run into that frustration because we're seeing that it's, this is mine. Or I have a job to do. You know, we don't have a job to do. We have a stewardship to carry. And God's in control of the circumstances that we're trying to, to please him in. And a lot of times we'll get frustrated with the circumstances. And many times that's because we forget that I'm his steward in his world. And he's got a plan here that I'm just trying to, to, to play out. That I'm just trying to, to glorify him, allow him to reign supreme. And recognize that in all things, in this area of my life, he is to be preeminent. And I'm just trying to be his steward of what he has placed here. You know, if, if in that restaurant that I was, was working in, if it would be that it, the place was run on a shoestring, or maybe the, the, the plan was, we're going to do as much here on it with as little as possible, that would be that manager's job, to do as much here with as little as possible. 
And that would be what the, the owner had been given to him to do. And that was what he would seek to do. Now, he, you know, if he were to come back to the owner and be like, oh, but I've got bigger plans than that. Man, I've got this and I've got that and we're going to need to get you know, another kitchen and I think you should buy that building over there and stuff. The owner would come back and say, no, this is what I have for you to do here. And a lot of times that's what we run into with God. But, you know, God, I, the circumstances, I just can't work in this. And he's saying, no, what I have for you to do is to allow Christ to reign supreme in you and in this context. And this is the stewardship that I've given you. And he's in control of the circumstances. He's in control of the situation. Paul saw this as being a, a, a steward. So let's look again at, uh, at this idea, our messenger of mysterious grace. Paul was willing to go through and even rejoice in his sufferings. He was excited to see his spiritual grandchildren, these Colossian believers, growing in their faith, standing firm in their faith. It would have been that in his ministry of, at, Epaph, at, at Ephesus, if you remember, that Epaphras would have come from Colossae and come to know Christ. And then Epaphras took that message back and this church in Colossae was planted. So these were in some ways Paul's spiritual grandchildren. But it wasn't this personal connection as much as these were Gentile believers that were standing in their faith. So Paul was excited for them and rejoicing because his stewardship from God, was, was he was getting to see that play out. Um, and Paul is our messenger of this mysterious grace. Because like I said, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and here we are. Look at what's been done for the kingdom and, and, and in the kingdom. You know, not to take pride of, we Gentiles, but you know, I mean, in, as the Western world has taken the gospel, and now the Gentiles in the Eastern world and in the Third world, hey, to tell you the truth, the truth is they're sending missionaries to America from Korea and, and from other places. Um, and all this because the gospel went forth to the Gentiles. Uh, but this idea of why are we calling it this mysterious grace? Well, he, he pl- placed this, this pretty interesting. But before we get to that, I, I wanna, before I forget to mention this, did you know there is a, um, a correlation? I heard of this study that was done of occupations. And there's a correlation between the greater calling a person feels in their occupation. There's a direct correlation to the less money they're willing to take for it. Okay? For instance, teachers, nurses, pastors, missionaries, pro bono attorneys, you know, that, or civil servants, uh, such as police officers, sheriff's deputies. The greater calling that their person feels to that occupation, the less money they're willing to take in order to do it. And, and it's kind of interesting how that works in the working world. But it also works that way. We see that going on in the life of Apostle Paul. Because he felt a great calling to this stewardship of taking the gospel to the Gentiles, this is why he's rejoicing in his sufferings. 
In fact, he describes to, the, to um, I believe it's the Corinthians, that he says, even while we were with you, we didn't even want to receive anything from you because we didn't want the gospel that we were preaching to, to be maligned in any way. You know, there's a direct con- connection there between us having a sense of calling to what God has for us to do and what we're willing to go through to see it accomplished. Um, and what I, would, what, I, what I hope to see for us, whether it be ministry within the body at harvest or ministry outside of the body, body of harvest, is that as we gain a greater vision of what it is that God is calling us to do in Montgomery County, individually as well as a church, that we gain a vision that the circumstances kind of don't even matter. Because we're not, we're, not, we're not getting our kicks off of these great circumstances we're in anymore. We're getting our kicks off of the fact that we're following what God has called for us to do. And that is my hope for you as individuals, is that within the body and outside of the body, that you would be able to attach yourself to, to what is my role? What has God designed me for? What is, God, what is the opportunity that he's put me in to be a part of this extraordinary plan that he has of making himself great in Montgomery County, making himself great in your neighborhood, and making himself great in your home? That no matter what the circumstances are, I'm rejoicing because I'm right where God wants me to be. I'm right where God wants me to be. Um, So I didn't want to let that go there. So he describes this, and this is why we call it this, him being a messenger of, our messenger of mysterious grace, because he goes on to describe this, how the word of God he's making better fully known as the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. Uh, Paul describes his ministry as making this word fully known, unpacking this mystery that's now revealed to the saints. And that leads us to our, to our second point of our message of saving grace. Our message of saving grace. And, and you might recall that the and Paul describes this message as a mystery that's coming to light now. This mystery that's finally being unpacked. You might recall the false teachers that were affecting the church in Colossae. They had um, sold a bill of goods of that we have this mysterious knowledge that as you kind of, the further you get initiated into our group, the more this, you're, you're given the answers to deeper questions of life. And Paul's, again, using one of their terms of this mystery that we have in Christ. Although there's plenty of other places in the scripture that God's plan is described as a mystery that's unfolding. I mean, over thousands of years, this mystery is unfolding. And we really have a privilege in history to sit where we are on this side of God's mystery unfolding. I don't know how I would feel having been one of these people that, that's like, I don't know where God's going with this 
You know, where's the Messiah? When is he coming? We're under this law, you know. Get to heaven and, and one of us would show up there, you know, that sits on this side of, of the gospel. I'd be like, hey, you guys had it easy. <laughs> you know, we have such a privilege of being on this side of this message of saving grace that Paul at this time describes it as a mystery being unpacked. Uh, Paul makes use of this word in verses 26 and 27 of this mystery in talking about the gospel. If you could define a mystery, it would be defined as this, a truth which would have been unknown if it had not been for special revelation from God. If it had not been for God revealing this is what the truth is, it would have remained unknown. And really what he was revealing was the gospel. Not just the gospel, but the gospel for us. The gospel for us, Gentiles. And, and this, wasn't, this wasn't just common knowledge for the Christians of that day in Jesus' day. But this mystery has two components to it. Two components. First of all, we Gentiles can know Christ. We Gentiles can know Christ. And I, again, we look at this as kind of like, well, duh. But this was not common knowledge for um, the believers during Jesus' time on this earth and, and shortly after his leaving. It was not common knowledge that Gentiles would be able to know Christ um, as Paul describes it, how greatly God would pour out his riches on the Gentiles. Do you realize that the common knowledge was, the common understanding in the early church after Christ ascended was that someone would need to become a Jew before they be, could, could become a Christian. And so as we see later in Colossians when Paul starts talking about circumcision and not circumcision and stuff like that, what he's referring to is do you have to get, become a Jew before you could get to Christ? And you could see how these, the false teachers in Colossae, specifically the ones that were emphasizing um, an ascetic lifestyle or, or living by the law and, and denying yourself pleasures, that they were tagging on to this. Well, you know, the, the Christianity has Jewish roots and, and Jesus was a Jew. And all those people that, that first came to Christ were Jews. So obviously you need to follow the Mosaic Law too. Um, and so that was the assumption. And that was in a little ways what was being sown in these false teachings as kind of giving it legitimacy, if you will, during that times. Um, the assumption was also, if you recall, maybe you don't recall, but look in Acts 2, that when the promised Holy Spirit came, that Jesus promised when he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, from, from Acts 2, when that Holy Spirit fell, he fell upon Jews that were in Jerusalem. And, and the falling of the Holy Spirit at that time, it was necessary for the falling of that Holy Spirit to be signified by their speaking in tongues. For them to understand, okay, this is what's, they connected the falling of the Holy Spirit to than speaking in tongues at that time. Well, the assumption was still at that time, okay, well, we're all Jews. So 
And of course, we're God's special people. And of course, the Messiah came for us. And now we've been told that the gospel would spread to Judea and Samaria and to the great ends of the earth. So we need to take our Judaism that has been finally um, confirmed and our Messiah has come. So we're taking our Judaism with us. So maybe you know of, of the story of in Acts 10 where Peter is confronted with being called by God to go and visit this Roman centurion named Cornelius. This man who was a lover of God and that God had said, I'm going to send someone to you to share my gospel with you. And Peter was kind of like, I'm not going there. This guy's a Gentile. You know, before I'm going to hang out with a Gentile, he needs to become a Jew because this would... would defile me. Peter, even the apostle Peter had this understanding that in order to become a Christian, you must first become a Jew. And God, you might know this, this, that God, and I apologize if this is like, A.D., we just heard about this two years ago or I've known about this for 20 years or something like that. I just have to assume we're all standing, you know, from ground zero here. But, um, so, God convinces Peter, no, I want you to take my gospel to this Gentile. And God's got something for Peter to see here. And so, just dipping into that Acts 10 chapter, it says, while Peter was still saying these things, sharing the truth of Christ with these Gentiles, the Holy Spirit fell on all who were, heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, so in other words, the, the Jewish Christians, uh, who had come with Peter, were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. And Peter even says at that moment, can we refuse these men to be baptized? Because they received the Holy Spirit. How? Just as we have. Signified by they spoke in tongues. So I don't want to go... Side note, speaking in tongues in that day was a, was a signal to the early church the Holy Spirit has come because they needed to see this because it was blowing their mind that the gospel could go to Gentiles that weren't Jews and the Holy Spirit would fall upon them. And so the, here we see this eye-opening experience that Peter has in seeing these Gentiles truly get saved, signified by the same thing that happened to the Jews at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fell upon them and they spoke in tongues. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're going way back here. But just explaining here, this is the mystery to this that Paul is speaking about here. So bringing God's plan to us Gentiles was a stewardship that Paul had and it was a mystery. He says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, speaking about through the Old Testament, but now revealed to his saints. What was that mystery? That God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So, now, the letter to the Ephesians was actually written at the same time as the letter to the Colossians. So if you read Colossians and Ephesians, there's so much parallel issues being taught. They were actually carried by the same carrier. Um, 
the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians. And in this, Paul describes that this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So even to the Ephesian church, Paul is, Paul is, is proclaiming the mystery is being unpacked, and that is Gentiles are fail, fellow heirs with Jewish Christians. And, you know, we could go into, if you want to look further at this, Acts 15 is really fascinating because all the apostles get together and put their heads together and like, okay, what's going on here? Do they have to be Jews or do they not have to be Jews? And that was the place where it was first finally established among all the apostles. The Gentiles can become believers without having become Jews. And that is why Paul's describing this as a a mystery. I hope you see this as being a very special thing for us. You know, we're not coming here with phylacteries and, um, and you know, I, I, I don't want to, I might end up being something offensive, I don't know. <laughs> but you know, this isn't a synagogue slash church. And, and we can know Christ. And not only that, but in what we're learning from Paul here, we can have a stewardship. We can see this life as being and what we have been called to do as a stewardship from him. Um, yeah, so I'm going to stop here and we're going to pick this up next week. The other component to this is that Christ dwells in, those who, in all who truly know him. This idea that our message of saving grace is not just that we Gentiles can, can know Christ as our Savior, but also the other part of this mystery is that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. And that's an amazing statement there. Let me just close in prayer and we'll pick this back up. Father, again, your, your, your plan and the mystery that you had unfolding for us is huge. It's eternal. And yet you've attached us to it. We have been able to know Christ as our Savior. We have been able to, to have full access to you. And, and there's nothing that hinders that fellowship that we can have with you when we um, keep short accounts and are able to walk with you and be filled with your Spirit. And, and Lord, um, each one of us You've, been, you've put us in roles, whether it be husband, wife, child, employer, employee, son, daughter. And Lord, I thank you that in the monotony of life, we can see these things as stewardships from you and, and we can undergo whatever we face, rejoicing in the fact that we can do it for you. And that it's a special calling that you've given to us. Lord, I I pray that you would bring to our minds this week as we face um, challenges, as we face encouraging um, situations, as we face ups and downs, 
that this is for you and that our life takes on just an incredible, well, our life has incredible significance and we're able to see that all the more as we're able to see our situations as being for the praise of your glory and that your son might be preeminent in whatever you put us in. Lord, I thank you for this truth and I just pray, Lord, that you'd carry us through the week on it and that you'd bring more of it to our minds. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.